just watching episode 48, Transcendence Part 2. Or should I say Pardu? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Eve Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. We are uh, once again talking about the movie Transcendence. We um, just finished up a discussion on the um, technology that was in there about whether humankind and technology kind of go together and how that works from a Christian worldview. And then we also discussed uh, briefly evolution and the whole concept of um, how that works in the movie and how it works along with a Christian worldview. And now we've, we're coming to the meat of this movie. Are we ever? Now, our first discussion, this whole, as I said, the meat of the movie is what is sentience. And I think it's very interesting that the whole concept of artificial intelligence, cloning, all of these these really high technical scientific things have really introduced this whole idea of what does it mean to be human? Because if we can clone the biological person or we can upload the brain into a computer, at what point does it cease to be a person? Mm, that's an excellent question. We actually dealt with this first quote in the previous episode, but now we're going to talk about it from a different point of view. This thing is like any intelligence. It needs to grow, to advance. Right now it's settling somewhere it thinks it's safe from outside threats. Somewhere its massive appetite for power can be met. Unlike what we were talking about originally uh, in episode 47 where we were talking about the need to grow being like a virus, here it's uh, it's really using it as an argument for sentience. Um, and they – just like at the end of the previous episode, they sort of want to have their cake and eat it too. <laughs> They want to use it as an argument for both. But uh, it, the point here, I think, is that they come out and they say that it is an intention to grow and to advance as opposed to a biological directive. Hmm. Right. So we're we're not even talking about reproduction here. We're just talking about um, growing – the organism itself growing. Yeah. And and seeking out ways in which it can grow, uh, applying its own will, <laughs> which begs the question: Did they did they um, have that in mind when they gave him his name? Interesting thought. When uh, it, there's a couple places where the wife is called Ever, uh, Eve, Evelyn. her name's Evelyn, right? Yes. And uh, at one point I thought, oh, I wonder if the name William ties back somehow to Adam. But I couldn't find any link. No, I don't think that was there. I definitely don't think they were trying to portray an Adam and Eve. But you never know. I mean, there may have been some thought to that. It's, it's the first man, the first technical man with his first wife. I don't know. But, yeah, because, yeah. Uh, it, you know, the end of the movie. It, They're together. Yeah, she wants to be uploaded, and he uploads her, thus infecting himself with the virus planted in her cells, um, and uh, 
then at the very end of the movie, it, it shows this protected uh, environment of mm-hmm. of nanocytes where, uh, in theory, they could coexist. Mm-hmm. Although yeah. now I think, uh, well, yeah, if we if we apply logic, she couldn't be there because she wasn't. Uh, that was deposited before. She was uploaded, but right. uh, logic isn't, uh, you know, there's a couple of plot holes there. So. Oh, yeah. There, there are several plot holes in this movie, but I think you can look beyond them because they're of the, the depth of what they were trying to say. Yeah. Um, now, we're going to maybe go just a teensy bit off topic with this next quote, but I know that you, it was kind of like a, a, a <laughs> little Easter egg for you. Yes. Hi, I uh, have a reservation under... Turing, I think. Okay, so when you said you didn't really catch it and that you had to look it up, I was I was shocked, shocked. <laughs> I say, uh, as somebody who's uh, studied computer science, the name Alan Turing is very well known known in our circles, and uh, Alan Turing is best. I want to say he's best known for the idea of the Turing test, and the Turing test is basically. Uh, who can build the first system that when presented in a segregated environment where all you can see is the responses being typed, uh, if you can tell if it's a human or a computer responding to your questions. And if you think back, um, I want to say back in the early 80s, there were attempts. uh, One very well-known one is uh, a program called ELIZA, Hmm. where it would just – it would just basically ask – it would take what you said, convert it into a question, and ask it back. And there are simulators online that you can find all over the place. But uh, the Turing test was held up as a holy grail. Mm-hmm. of uh of artificial intelligence if it could pass the turing test if somebody could not tell that it was if it was human or a computer on the other end then it was said to pass the turing test and be artificially intelligent hmm interesting and so and has a yeah. computer ever successfully passed it you know it, that's that's interesting an interesting question in and of itself because whether or not it passes the Turing test is completely an element of uh, opinion. Right. Uh, it's all perspective, you know, and honestly, I know. Is. Yeah. Yeah. I know several people who I wouldn't be able to tell they weren't computers. And that's when I'm <laughs> sitting across answers. the table from them. <laughs> that's scary. Yeah. So was the um, the question that they present several, a couple times in this movie of can you prove yourself aware? Is that uh, in any way have to do with Turing or is that so- yeah. come from something else? Uh, and that comes back to this entire uh, – the entire topic of episode 48, which is uh, sentience and soul. Uh, mm-hmm. Not the entire topic because we're going to be talking <laughs> about creating God too. Um, but sentience and soul, um, what is – What's the difference? What makes a soul? What makes uh, what makes something sentient? And that's what Turing, the Turing test in particular, was all about. And what he was trying to discover. Yeah. And and he probably passed away without seeing a, 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 any conclusion to oh, that. He definitely did. I spent my life trying to reduce the brain to a series of electrical impulses. 
I failed. Human emotion. It can contain illogical conflict. You can love someone. And yet hate the things that they've done. Machine can't reconcile that. I find this this quote very interesting because we're talking about what a a, a conflict that a machine can't reconcile. So this is you know this, this is the further discussion of what makes a computer sentient. Um, is in in putting in emotion. The balance of oxytocin and serotonin in your system is unusual. Are you... Are you measuring my hormones? I'm trying to empathize. Biochemistry is emotion. Just going to add this to this discussion because we're, we're talking about a machine that, that is trying to show emotion and is, not, is, is kind of failing at it if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's talking to his wife, but he's not able to talk to her in an emotive sense. He's just got to read her emotions from the biochemistry. And he, he even says biochemistry is emotion. So I think that Max in the, the quote before was really onto something in that, that human emotion is somewhat illogical. Oh, you know, for me though, this was, this was just more example of the overuse of tropes in, <laughs> in this movie. Yeah. Because, you know, you you think back to all those stories about, oh, how do we beat an artificial intelligence? I know. Let's ask it to calculate the exact digit or the exact value pi. Okay. Or uh, let's ask it to divide uh, or let's ask it for the square root of negative one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it – it, uh... oh, what's my favorite one? Oh, um, the next thing I say will be a lie. This sentence is absolutely true, or something like that. Yeah, uh, catching the, it the on, whole logical. on conflicts. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's and, and while it's true, well, it may be true rather that uh, emotions will be very difficult or uh, impossible for computers, uh, computerized intelligence to ever replicate. Um, I just don't think that that it's a worthy addition to uh, a, a very good addition to the story to throw this line, this line being thrown in there like that. I don't know because, because we are talking in, in, in this, we're not talking about a clean artificial intelligence here. We're talking about what they suppose to be the uploaded consciousness of a human being. Uh, that's true. We, we are approaching this from a different standpoint in that Will and his, human existence loved Evelyn. There was a a time when the two of them were so close he was willing to do just about anything for her. And they upload his consciousness into a computer and Max is saying, you know, this is a human emotion that a machine can't do. So he's using that as his guide as to whether Will really exists still. By that argument, though, if... Uh... If we're starting from the point where the intelligence is not an artificial intelligence, but it's the completely uploaded personality, memories, mm-hmm. uh, sentience of Will Caster, mm-hmm. then why can't the uh, illogical conflicts continue? I don't know, because if, if, he's, if he is still human, 
as a machine, then there wouldn't be an illogical conflict. He would be able to see past it. Mm-hmm. But if he's now machine and not, and he's just a remembered thinking a machine that can remember who he was as a human then things that he thought in the past would become illogical it might actually create a logical fallacy inside the thinking of the machine that would cause it not to work that's sort of what the question comes down to for between between max and evelyn then Mm -hmm. is uh, and really what the entire movie is about is the uh intelligence as it exists in the uploaded transcendent will (laughs) yeah is it transcendent will or is it just a computer system an artificial intelligence with access to all of will's memories right pen with a with a will interface (laughs) yeah you know that actually that question comes in in this uh in the next quote that we want to play can you prove that you are self-aware that's a difficult question dr tagger can you prove that you are (laughs) <laughs> that that is interesting because that actually is repeated twice in the movie. That one's from when they asked Pin earlier. Yeah, and yeah. and then they ask they ask him uh, they ask him the same question, and he gives the identical response later in the movie, word for word. Except the dif- the difference is you can see the avatar of Will's face when he mm-hmm. gives the answer. And his voice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you have those you have those uh, nonverbal clues. Of right. him giving that uh, that disgustingly cute Johnny Depp half grin, <laughs> and uh, you know the the lilt of his voice that you didn't get with Pin at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, her her voice is very artificial. He gives it that kind of human spin. I don't know. Can you? You know. Yeah. Um, it's a difficult question, and and you know one of the things about throwing it out like that is that, and then immediately everybody turns around and thinks in their mind. How would I prove that I'm self-aware? There's all kinds of philosophies out there that suggest that uh, uh, our existence is completely limited to our own perception. Mm-hmm. It is being able to prove that we are self-aware how we would demonstrate sentience. Because that that's t- just kind of puts a different spin on that question. Instead of, can you prove that you're self-aware, turn that around and say, does being able to prove that you're self-aware demonstrate sentience? I wonder if there's a psychological illness for people who are convinced that they don't actually exist. <laughs> yeah, I, I was. I would imagine it. It's probably a spin on schizophrenia. Uh, um, one of the things, uh, the question of self-aware, just it it reminded me of one of the tests that they use uh, for self-aware is uh, the mirror test. Have you have you heard of that? Huh. Where they they put a mirror. In uh, an animal pen, uh, be it a dolphin tank or an elephant uh, pen at a zoo or something, and then they they place something on the animal so that they can't feel it, but they can see it in the mirror. Mm-hmm. And then they observe to see if the animal realizes that the reflection is a representation of how they look, not another animal entirely. Right. And I want to I say would imagine a lot of a lot of animals probably fail that test. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's I, I remember that there was an elephant that uh, used the mirror to take off whatever it was they had put on or something like that. And I always mm-hmm. thought that was an interesting test. But that I think that's how they define self-aware. I don't think I don't think self-aware and sentience are the same thing. No, I don't think they are either. I think that um, 
I well, not for one thing. I know a cat will fail that test because <laughs> they will play with the mirror. Uh, I've seen it happen over All and over again. All cats uh, are psychopaths. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I don't think that, that being able to prove yourself aware is necessarily uh, a level or a, a measurement of sentience. Assuming that implanting an electrode into his brain doesn't actually kill him and that this works, at the very best, you'll be making a digital approximation of him. If we missed anything, anything, a thought, a, a childhood memory, how will you know what you're dealing with? <laughs> I think this is very interesting because... This comes up in the discussions on cloning and twinning as well, that we are not necessarily the products of our biology, but we also are products of our experiences in our environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, sentience and how it resides in in our personhood um, is, is a very interesting discussion because here they're talking about if we miss just one single childhood memory, will it really be will? And I know that 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 our experiences do make us. And if like somebody goes through, uh, we discussed in the previous episode briefly, you know, the complexity of the human brain and how somebody could have, you know, part of their brain chopped out and still um, learn and grow, but they're different people. Yeah. It's like, they're never the same person again because they either lose memories or they, they lose a part of themselves and, and they can become perfectly functional people missing a piece of their brain because their, their brain is able to rewire and still function but they lose a portion of themselves that made them who they were. Yeah. And they're now a different person. There's a movie from the uh from the uh early 90s uh regarding Henry. Mm-hmm. Did you happen to see that one? Yes, I did. Uh, where it, it deals with exactly the same question and this is not something that a computer can do. Right. Um and it just it, in the last several weeks at work, we've been doing uh what's called an iOS or an operating system upgrade on um, several hundred routers and switches throughout our company network. Mm -hmm. And when you upload the new uh, switch iOS to to a switch that, you know, is sitting in an office out in Tennessee when I'm sitting in my office here in Virginia Beach, Mm -hmm. you want to make sure that you have an exact copy of the iOS exactly as the creator intended it to be so what you do is you run a verify against a hashtag or a hash Mm -hmm. which is basically a a numerical representation or an alphanumeric representation of a of an identity Mm -hmm. and if that hash does not match then the switch won't load right It, it will completely fail and we've had branches go down for two days right because we had to ship them out another switch to replace the one where the upload failed and we missed it. Right. And I think that's the difference that we're seeing here is that uh, the question between Max and Evelyn. It can't lose part of itself and still be. (laughs) Yeah. Whether or not it's human and can recover from a loss like that. Yeah. Like in regarding Henry or if it's a computer and cannot. And I think both those characters were on different sides of that. Uh, that debate opinion. yeah that opinion huh that, i mean it's just very interesting to think about the human brain as a computer but it's so utterly complex that we just cannot fathom there's no way we could duplicate it and so this discussion of sentience and whether we can create it in a computer i think we could maybe upload portions and maybe get a, a good copy but whether 
you could transfer the sentience from the biological computer to the technical computer would be, um, I don't know. I just, I honestly don't think it's possible. Yeah, I would have to agree. I think that they created a very good artificial form of will. But I think I agree with Max. I don't think it was really will. Yeah, and you know that for me, this question ties back into whether will there ever be teleportation? Mm-hmm. Because uh, teleportation is essentially the complete destruction of uh, on an anatomical level, or excuse me, an atomic level of and a, a form at one end exactly. Yeah. So if you recreate a human brain in exactly the same state, and we're talking with the exact same neurons firing in exact same second, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, would it still be the same person? Uh, it's an interesting thought experiment, but I sincerely hope we never get there. <laughs> never try it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It would be cloning in a very immediate form, I guess. Penn could never distinguish between right and wrong. Demonstrate loyalty, right? Case's solution to the problem of self-awareness. Use an existing mind. Okay, this is one of your favorites, I think. Oh, yes. This has a really strong biblical tie-in. And for me, this is what so much of the movie was about. Uh, the question of uh, being able to tell right from wrong. And, it, and so and it ties back to uh, Genesis 3, uh, 22 and 23, where... Um, Eve and Adam have just eaten from the the fruit of the tree. Mm -hmm. And uh, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. And uh, it really, this is the entire question as a science fiction reader for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, or viewer, if you happen to be talking a movie, is sentience requires for me an ability to discern good and evil. So are you saying that Adam and Eve were not sentient until they disobeyed God and ate of the knowledge tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, did they have free will? Clearly they did. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise they wouldn't have been able to eat from the tree of good and evil. Right. Um, so, uh, yes, they were sentient, but they also existed in, in a perfect state. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think that uh, that perfect state is going to be able to exist again until God makes it so. Until consummation, right. Yeah. yeah. So um, in our frame of reference as humans living in a corrupted world, mm-hmm. I think that a machine sen- a machine cannot be sentient until – uh, or anything can be considered sentient until it can establish what is right and what is wrong. Hmm. And, you know, I think of like uh, I'm a dog person. Right. And uh, my dogs know when they're doing something right and when they're doing something wrong, but only by our reaction to it. Right. Or from the way we've trained them. Yeah. It's, it's it's definitely interesting. I wonder if 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 a a growing machine where we've created it to interact with humanity, whether we could teach it right and wrong. It would be interesting because we could teach we could teach animals to some degree what's right and wrong. So. Well, dogs are really uh, very smart. I know there are some animals out there that they say are smarter than them, but um, dogs, I think, only can get up 
to the cognitive level, they said, of something like a three-year-old. And I know every three-year-old I've raised, they still knew wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's it's a fine line to go from talking about sentience to soul. One of the things that I found really interesting about looking for the word soul in the scripture was that depending on your translation you use, soul can be synonymous with life. And I find that interesting that in scripture, that connotation of soul becomes life because in the same instance, it is different because there's life without soul. I mean, there's all kinds of bio life out there that we would never think of as having souls, but yet, yeah. Um, I think it's mainly an English translation issue. It's like probably in the original Hebrew and Greek, um, they were different words, but it got translated soul. Um, it would be an interesting study, but there's a lot that has to do with the soul in this movie. Is there a soul? And if so, where does it reside? Okay. So I think this is a, a question that has plagued humanity for long before there was technology because in mm -hmm. some cultures they believe the soul is in the heart and some cultures they believe it's in the brain. I think there's been like these little isolated tribes that, that missionaries have gone to who thought it was in the liver or the stomach. Um, it, it's very interesting <laughs> where people think the soul resides inside our body. Um, it, it's, it's a definite academic question that can make you think. <laughs> The, uh, the the story potential for the question of soul goes so far back, but uh, the one that comes to mind uh, immediately is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. um, the, the the you know putting aside the the Bela Lugosi you know era uh, movie versions, the mm -hmm. Frankenstein's monster in this story is an intelligent thinking thing, and the, it questions whether or not it has a soul. Mm -hmm. Right. And and it's actually a, a put together human, but it has a brain that has been resuscitated. So it is somewhat human. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it, I would say that this this discussion goes way back. <laughs> <laughs> and it's probably not something we're going to solve in this um in, in this podcast. No, but, I don't think so. Yeah, but it's still an, an interesting discussion that's brought about by this movie. Now, there's a scene in there where the terrorist lady talks about the, that she was involved with the original study where they uploaded a monkey. The machine that thought it was a monkey never took a breath. It never ate, never slept. It just screamed. Now... I thought that this is very interesting. This develops her character a little bit because she she's coming from a totally different angle about artificial intelligence and uploading human consciousness. Um, this monkey just was begging them to shut it down. It kind of gives you that that whole human emotion is, is it right to even contemplate a human intelligence that is imprisoned in a technolo technological cage? Yeah. And why did Will work? Where the monkey just screamed. Right. Maybe it, it, in the context of the story, maybe it was Will's soul that made the difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the monkey didn't have one. And all the monkey knew was that it wasn't where it belonged. Mm -hmm. So, And it was terrified and it just didn't want to be there and it screamed. Um, 
Well, obviously, this is this is science fiction. This is somebody telling a story. So we don't know whether that would really be the difference between uploading a monkey and uploading a human. We don't even necessarily know whether it's actually possible. Yeah. But it is an interesting uh, way to talk about the difference between humanity and monkeys and the difference between something that has a soul and something that doesn't have a soul. And I don't think that they... Um, you know, and the they kind of leave you questioning at the end whether it really was Will. But I think that the very idea that we could transfer a person's soul from their body to a machine, I don't actually think Will even believed that it was going to happen. Uh, he certainly didn't seem to at the time that they were doing it. Yeah. I'll be long gone. But you, you'll never hear the end of it. If we don't try. Will actually, he, he concedes to this experiment, but in his own thoughts and in his own reactions, he believes he's going to be dead. Mm-hmm. That he's going to be gone. So it doesn't matter what happens after. He's, he's, he's dead and gone. It doesn't matter. And he doesn't, he doesn't seem to believe in an afterlife either. Yeah, so I think that he gave himself up to this experiment for his wife, but I don't think that he really believed that he would transcend life into um, technology. Yeah, uh, I think by the end of the movie, I think that they were saying that uh, it was the same person, that the will of the human body was the will of the intelligent machine. Um but uh, I think that was only left for the very end of the movie. Kind of a technological eternity. Yeah. In which yeah. Th- they lived together from then on. I I can see that that was the point that was made, but I don't necessarily think that they well presented it well enough where you actually believed that it was truly Will. I think it yeah, was... It, they left it hanging. Uh, they left it vague intentionally, I think. Yeah, I think that... Um, in her reaction, she believed it was Will there at the end. But I think that once again, it could still be a convincing uh, duplication of Will without actually being Will. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't know that they truly answered whether you could transport a soul, a human soul into a computer. That was actually one of the things I liked about this movie is it uh, it left the question hanging. Yeah, it didn't try to answer all the questions. It kind of let yeah, exactly. It kind of let you decide for yourself, which is good to leave you thinking at the at the end of a movie. It's like hmm. Okay, so the next really big topic to discuss, and this will take easily the rest of our time. We may even go over time on this episode because there's so much here. Is the discussion of creating God. And we're going to start with the quote that introduces this right at the beginning of the movie. Mr. Caster? Yes, sir. You have a question? So, you want to create a God? Your own God? That's a very good question. Um, isn't that what man has always done? <laughs> Isn't that what man has always done? Create God. And that's the answer of an atheist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because to me, I think it, well, obviously, this is not an accident that this accusation appears so early in the movie right. because there is this underlying theme of will as a God um, through the rest of the movie. And 
by, by introducing this at the beginning, it makes you start thinking about that right at the beginning so that you are then make, drawing parallels throughout the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. So since they are obviously wanting us to draw these parallels, I think we should go ahead and talk about the parallels. Absolutely. Now, the big difference, obviously, for Christianity is we do not follow an invented God. We did not create God. God created us. It's a big, very big difference because creation implies ownership. Don't you think? Uh, yeah. I, I, I was just thinking, <laughs> I don't want to be the one who created God. <laughs> That's a lot of responsibility. You'd forget something yeah. very important somewhere along the way. Uh, uh, that quote, it just, it makes me think, man, that is hubris. Mm-hmm. It is, it, it's just like, that's what we've always done. Really? I don't think I've ever tried to create God. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah. God it pre-exists us and that's, that's the whole point. I mean, yeah. it's. That's actually the biggest characteristic of God is that he's eternal. He he always was. He always is. He always will be. We have parameters in which we live that Temp- God exceeds. Temporal parameters. <laughs> Temporal parameters, yeah. yes. Now, I thought what we might do just briefly is kind of show, just play a, a few quotes here with commentary that kind of are the, the God-like parts of Will. Here's the first one. Look at the sky. clouds we're healing the ecosystem not harming it particles join the air currents building themselves out of pollutants forests can be regrown water so pure you can drink out of any river Okay, unlike Christianity, um, this technological God, he focuses on the physical realm, like healing the planet, healing sickness, Mm -hmm. conquering disease. Um, There's not a spiritual dimension to this. And I think that's important because in Christianity, it's all about the spiritual dimension. It's about the soul. It's about eternity. Um, While God has given us dominion over the earth um, and we're to rule it wisely, that is not the ultimate purpose of man. I would propose that um, if we could have the fictional character of Will Caster here and interview him uh, mm-hmm. uh, through the computer, ironically, he would <laughs> he would not claim to be a god. He would yeah. he would just say, "I'm just doing what is within my capability, which happens to be." So much more than what is in the capability of a untranscended human right uh and i think that the uh the movie's creators are maybe even suggesting that's what god is is just Mm -hmm. an intelligence that transcends right and tries to do good yeah yeah because he because he does try to do good he just perhaps is a bit misunderstood but yeah but he's he is focusing on the physical though you know the 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 concept of healing people that need healing and there's nothing wrong with that he's actually being a good steward of the gift that he's been given right and it's ultimate purpose of of um someone to do good with the environment and whatever but it definitely is not 
um, God. And like you said, I agree with you. I don't think Will was trying to be God, but I think that the fact that the whole concept of creating God is so important at the beginning of the movie, I think that that's what they were setting him up that they were concerned that he would become or try to become yeah, a god. I think they were intentionally planting the seed of mistrust right. with that original question where the uh, the protester asked it. And uh, mm-hmm. it, it's the seed that underlays all of the characters' misguided actions uh, or the misguided right, actions Will. of all the characters towards Will throughout right. the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Here's another quote. Why did you lose faith, Evelyn? Why didn't you believe me? <laughs> now, this this whole concept of belief and faith actually is repeated a couple times. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's it's interesting that this instance right here is the moment of betrayal for Will. This is when Evelyn has has changed sides and she's come back to Will to kill him. Basically, um, this is the Judas moment. Yep. And in order for there to be a Judas moment, then you're kind of that whole concept of why didn't you believe me? Why are you betraying me? That raises a third parallel. And then we're going to keep running through these very quickly. Um, here's the next one. You want to destroy me? No, well, please. You're destroying them. No. I'm trying to save them. <laughs> okay, so we talked about um, tropism, and, and you were <laughs> saying earlier that p- people fearing what they don't understand is a trope. The biggest one. This was the biggest one for me. Yeah, but just stepping past that really quick, Will's answer is, I was trying to save them. So she was referring to the fact that they're seeing what he's doing as destroying them while he's seeing what he's doing as trying to save them. This is salvation being rejected by the masses Ah, and this is another parallel that's a nice parallel i like that yeah yeah because we've got um christ has offered salvation free of charge to anybody who's willing to accept it and it's rejected by a vast majority of humanity they don't want to have anything to do with a salvation that requires them to admit that they are wrong and repent and accept that free salvation because it requires them to do first of all admit they're wrong Mm -hmm. first of all admit that they they're sinners and have to turn their back on their sin and become different um, that they reject that that form of salvation. It's the same thing with Will because Will's salvation in in this movie is turning a, their back on their individuality and becoming a part of his form of a collective mind. And you know that in the movie they never really uh, they imply by Will taking possession of the enhanced individuals, but they never right. really come out and say, say that yeah that yeah. they're not still completely individual um now i don't like the idea of the possession but you know maybe there's an mm-hmm. internal dialogue going on where will goes to martin hey uh martin do you mind if i borrow your body for a minute oh no sure will go ahead <laughs> and and we see martin when he's dying when they take him out of the collective you know they take him out of will's reach and he's begging them to put him back to to get him back in contact and, you know, I want to take this point a little bit further, and that's something that – this is something we do as Christians all the time. We mm-hmm. pray for Christ to act through us and dwell in us. Uh, you know, when when I go to talk to a coworker, it's like, God, give me the right things to say. Yeah. 
And and that's exactly what's happening. Boy, I, I can't believe I didn't see this until you brought it up in this discussion. That's great, Eve. <laughs> yeah. And to me, that was like this this ultimate parallel that they're showing is that when Will becomes um, the savior of these people, he is living in them. He's indwelling them. And they make that a bad thing in this movie. So in almost in a way, they're saying that that Christianity as as a parallel we are hopefully being indwelt by the spirit of God and we are acting as a collective mind through God, mm-hmm. um, that, that, is, that that's actually a bad thing. Yeah. They raise a specter of free will here. Are the people still themselves? Mm-hmm. And uh, right. the reason that um, Calvinists and Arminians mm-hmm. uh, discuss free will versus uh, predestination, it ties back to God, one of the uh, – one of the elements, uh, characteristics of God, which is the omniscience, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's an omniscience outside of temporal realm too. So uh, everything mm-hmm. that ever happened and ever will. Um, but in this case, the the question is not one of omniscience, but it's a question of uh, of total control over their body, right? Which is not the same thing in in the case of this movie, right? Yeah, it's just a to me, it was an interesting parallel. I like that. That's a good catch. And here's another one. You never believed. You never believed that there was anything more. Evelyn is telling Max that he never believed. And to me, this is um, kind of like the parallel um, with Christianity as of the atheist. This is this is the person who never had the faith to begin with. So Max plays the role as the person who never truly believed. And so he's now laying down plans to destroy God. Yeah, Max sees, so. Max sees Will uh, as a, uh invasive life form, uh, mm-hmm. really, uh, uh, and one without a moral compass, which is right. why he's struggling to destroy him. Yeah. Um, and so, so does uh, Morgan Freeman's character, too, for that matter. Right. Yeah. I I thought that was very interesting that he hands her a handwritten note when they come to visit and it just basically says, run away as fast as you can. Yeah. <laughs> he was he was very scared of what he, he saw Will building. And Evelyn, I think, was already beginning to question it at that point. Um, she was living with Will in a in a way that was not conducive to a relationship between a husband and a wife. And I think it really changed her perspective on on the consciousness that of will mm-hmm. as he was presented through the machine i and i think that she was getting a little scared of him at the end yeah it was creepy the scene where they're having dinner together and uh and he emulates himself on the screen eating complete with the sound of utensils mm-hmm. and she, he thought it, sh- it would make her more comfortable but it was just creeping her out and and part of that scene too was the the person that was there pouring the wine for her and and just being there as as an extension of will but not being will and I think that that kind of creeped her out too the you know the the people moving about as extensions of of will's will <laughs> hey there's that name again um here's the next quote he can't die because of what we've done. Now, this is one that you had brought up, um, that sacrifice, you know, the whole, that mm-hmm. whole concept of sacrifice, which is a very powerful theme in Christianity because God sent Jesus to give his life for us. And it's, it's kind of a, almost a different emphasis here in the movie. There's nobody giving their life for the purpose of salvation. It's more of 
that they shouldn't get, have to give their life yeah. for them. When I watched this scene, I was thinking more of uh, uh, not sacrifice so much in the religious or Christian context mm -hmm. as much as I was thinking how often it's used as a uh, plot element in stories. And um, mm -hmm. it, I, I honestly – and I don't have any – argument to back this up but i honestly believe that it is so powerful a element for uh, storytellers to use because of god's plan mm -hmm. and uh that it touches something in the common revelation mm -hmm. uh the common understanding that all creation has regarding christ's role mm -hmm. and uh i think on that very core instinctual level sacrifice touches that heartstring right and uh it it it's interesting how so many people embrace sacrifice as a uh, as an element but don't embrace the sacrifice that is the ultimate <laughs> is the ultimate yeah. the the uh uh the template for all other sacrifices right. in, in uh, Hebrews nine twenty two, it says indeed under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And this was set up all the way back at the beginning when Adam and Eve actually sinned by eating of the, the tree that God told them not to eat of. And they realized they were naked. The first thing that they realized when they had this knowledge of good and evil was that they were naked and there was something wrong with that. And so God uh, killed an animal, shed blood to create skins to cover their nakedness. God did that. So this was the very first sacrifice in scripture. And it was a, a foreshadowing of what Jesus would have to do on the cross for our, to cover our, all the sins of humanity, past, present and future and provide ultimate salvation so that we could then be um, renewed in our, our relationship with God, that barrier mm -hmm. of sin. So it, it's, it's sacrifice is a perfect picture of what God did for us. It's interesting enough that it was will who ends up sacrificing himself because he knowingly lays down his life at the end of this movie. Yeah. He, he has, there's no doubt that he's embracing his demise by allowing Max to live. Right. Right. So he does give himself, it's, it's not Max who dies. It's, it's will. So, and Evelyn, they both have to give up their lives. He has to give up his life and Evelyn's life too. Yeah, that was one of those tropes that uh, that bugged me. Was uh, uh, at that point, Will says, uh, "I can either upload the virus, or I can, or I can save him. I, there's not enough power to do to do both." Well, save her, not him. Save her. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and is it, there there was actually a reason for that because they had destroyed all of his. Um, all of his solar panels that, that was they were attacking a solar panel oh, so he yeah. was running I out of power of yeah so yeah. It, it, it wasn't so much that he couldn't do one or the other it was because they were already had significantly impacted his ability to um draw power and so he on, he was suffering and he had to make choices based on the power usage that he had so I didn't necessarily. Okay. It's still little manufacturing, yeah. but uh, not as bad as I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, because remember the first thing they did was start um, shooting missiles at his um, solar arrays. So he was losing power. So there was 
though to me that was kind of, I, I agree with you on one level because he'd already transcended the need for that by sending all of his nanites into nature um mm-hmm. did he really need the solar array anymore so i yeah it wasn't even connected yeah <laughs> so i i can see both sides to that to that statement now there was i don't really have a quote for this but it was something i noted um near the end where they were having this fight with will and will was really not fighting back he was really just kind of blocking but there were two characters that you saw in those scenes that were part of the collective um and they were these two drug addicts who had originally beaten up martin earlier in the movie mm-hmm. which had caused martin to become part of the collective because will had to heal him and I just thought it was very interesting that it was these two characters who were um, had been absorbed into the collective, which meant that they had become part of this technological god, basically. And um, I kind of thought about that as kind of a, a type of salvation or forgiveness and that their actions were not held against them. And Will was was entertaining all who would come to him. He was not turning away anybody for any reason. Uh, let me take this a step further. It the framing of the movie, you know how uh, Max's character goes back to the the garden mm-hmm. and uh, it is uh, looking at um, where the nanoparticles are are gathered under the Faraday cage. Mm-hmm. Do you think Do you think Max's character understands that that's an unperverted um, uh, example of Will's uh, being in that uh, in that little puddle there i don't know i'm wondering you know does he become a believer is max a a parallel to the biblical conversion of saul to paul Mm -hmm. um you know max directly causes the death of martin who if we're drawing if we're drawing the the metaphorical parallels here is an apostle Mm -hmm. and uh then but in the framing max is saying oh i knew them best and uh, he's looking down and he's watching as the nanites start to reform. Right. So I'm I'm wondering, you know, did they did they intentionally draw a parallel here to Paul? Right. I don't know. I I very much doubt that it was an intentional parallel to Paul, but because they, <laughs> they, I mean, think about who was making this movie. The the last thing um, I wanted to talk about. I mean, obviously, we're jumping to these really fast because we're running out of time. But um, there's another one. The last thing I want to talk about, the collective. The physical enhancements are just the start. What do you mean? He's also connected to me. Now, we've kind of already touched on the fact that we're talking about a collective and that's kind of a parallel to the Christian faith where we become the temples of God and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and become part of the body of Christ. There is that parallel there. Um, What I thought was very interesting was that Martin gets separated and he actually gets um, severed from that collective, and and it basically kills him. But it's a great promise to us because in Romans eight thirty seven to thirty nine it says, "No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor breadth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord." And when I saw Martin get separated, that just kind of, you know, if you're drawing that parallel, um, it's a great promise to know that nothing can separate us from God. 
Absolutely. And the idea that transcendent will was not a, a very good God. I just want to run through very quick the characteristics of God. Just a few of them. I didn't even do all of them. This is just a quick um, discussion of what makes God God and how will stacks up against it. Well, the first one um, is uh, God is omniscient. He knows everything. And just a few references. I won't actually read the verses. You can look them up on our, um, on our show notes, or you can go on, go on to the Bible and look them up yourself. But it's 1 John 3.20, Psalm 147.5, Hebrews 4.13, Romans 11.34. Now, God is omniscient. That means he knows everything. But transcendent will only knows what he can see through the man-made systems. So he's, he's networked into the internet. He can see anything that any computer on the internet can see. He can probably see things through satellite. But people can hide from him by going into Faraday cages and they can stay off the grid and they can't see them. He comes close to being able to read minds because he can measure biochemical reactions in his wife, but he can't actually know what people are thinking. So he is not all-knowing. Yeah, he's still completely limited by his sensory input. He just has hundreds of thousands of more senses available to him than the average human. human. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which is still a infinitely small percentage of what God has available to him. Right. So, uh, which is also, it also ties into the next Mm -hmm. one, which is God is omnipotent, uh, which means that he's all powerful. Right. And uh, Will is, uh, he's limited by what he can physically control through the use of his nanites or with the power generated by the solar cells. Um, And uh, he's limited in as far as the physical interactions and the physical laws of the universe. Right. Um, He's also, he's controlling people through his nanites, but he can only control them when he has access to them because that's how Martin loses um, connection with him is they pull him inside uh, a Faraday Faraday cage and he's no longer accessible. So he's not... There, there are limits to his power and his reach. Mm-hmm. Now, the next one is, and this is, uh, once again, ties into it. He's omnipresent. Um, this is in Jeremiah 23, 24, Psalm 139, 7 through 10, 1 Kings 8 through 27. Um, God is everywhere and he's every when. It's like there, you can't go into any place or any time where God does not exist. Um, Will is only present in the technology that he's existed in, and he's he's also present in in the people he controls through his nanites, and he creates a body for himself in the end. But that's that limits where his presence is. He's not he can't go beyond that. His consciousness is still limited to a uh, uh, temporal presence. It, he will always still exist in the now, right? And uh, he can't exist in the when uh, the then <laughs> yeah, the, the then. when like yeah. like God does. Right, exactly. So God is also good. (laughs) God is good. God is omnibenevolent. And uh, for that, we reference you to Mark 10, 18. Um, We can't really say it too many different ways. God is good. (laughs) God is good. God God is is good. good. Um, Uh, Will demonstrates that he has an understanding of love, but his understanding is unenlightened. mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a secular understanding of of what it means to be loving. He doesn't understand. Uh, he lacks all the other. He lacks the omniscience that mm-hmm. would allow him to to uh, to to be omni omnibenevolent. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that Will comes very close to 
the secular understanding of what it would be to be all all good. Um, but uh, there is definitely a level at which he lacks. And so uh, I I think this is the secular understanding of what it looks like to be all good. Um, He does not react violently. Um, He basically forgives and saves all who comes to him. Um, So he does have that aspect of what secularists would think of, but he definitely doesn't approach um, the God level. And, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people, when they argue against God being good, they point back to the uh, the Old Testament. Yeah. I mean, even even I have trouble with the uh, – in, in uh, Joshua and Judges where mm-hmm. they uh, – where God orders the um, complete elimination of a people, mm-hmm. man, women, and children. Right. Uh, I'd have all kinds of trouble uh, doing that, and, and that would be with, you know uh, – God standing right there and giving the order, and and um, it is God's omniscience and uh, omnipresence that gives Him the authority and the ability to uh, to do that. And if you don't believe in those, then you can't you can't wrap you can't your hand in understand. Mind. Yeah, yeah, you, you can't wrap your mind. And and that leads to another characteristic of God, in that He's just. Um, that's in Deuteronomy thirty two four and Psalm eighteen thirty. This is an aspect of God I think that people tend to forget. They want to have the the all good aspect of God, but they don't want to have a just God. But God in and of himself is is just, and so he can't ignore wrongdoing. And that's why he had to provide a a way for uh the sacrifice of blood to to cover our sins so that we could um once again be in communion with him because he is just. Um will doesn't appear to have any concept of justice. I think that goes back to the that discussion we had about whether a computer can know right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And you have to have a concept of right or wrong in order to be just because you have to be able to um, have the ultimate good and the ultimate wrong and be able to d- tell the difference. And he doesn't have that in understanding. He doesn't recognize culpability, um, personal guilt, or the need for forgiveness when you've done wrong. Yeah, it actually seems like a complete void in his character. Right. Uh, at uh, not even after, just after the upload, but in his character in the entire movie. Yeah. <laughs> um. It one of the other uh, characteristics of God is that he is eternal, mm-hmm. and again that that comes back to his uh, God's not being tied to a temporal timeline, mm-hmm. but we are. So our perception is that God is uh, eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- we tie back to Revelations 4, 8, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 33, 27, Psalm 92, 2, and 1 Timothy 1, 17. But uh, Will, uh, Will Castor, as an uploaded being here, clearly has a beginning and an end. Mm-hmm. And God, it, it, you cannot be God without being eternal. You You cannot be limited that way Mm -hmm, right that pretty much is that's by definition he if he's created he has a beginning if he's not created he doesn't so he's not created the last one we're going to do and like i said there's lots of characteristics of god we're just touching on a few of them but this is um, god is holy revelation 15 4 exodus 15 11 habakkuk 113 psalm 145 17 um i didn't see any aspect of will that you could term will uh, holy. He wasn't perfect. Um, he doesn't even, I, I guess I don't even really see that he was, like you said, he's not presenting himself as a God. So he doesn't um, present himself as holy. But at the same time, a God is holy. 
He doesn't have to present himself as holy. He simply is holy. Yeah. He demands reverence and he demand from his followers. You cannot. Um, I, th- I think one of the, the things that you see over and over again in the Old Testament, especially when he interacts with people, is he hides them from from his glory because they they in, a, in their humanity can't take it. It would kill them if they actually saw him in, in his true reverence and his holiness. And so um, that is an aspect of God that Will doesn't even come close yeah. to. Wasn't it Moses was just in the general area when God passed by and he w- physically glowed from the encounter? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And uh, it, even though Will didn't, uh, Will didn't seem to present himself as holy. Uh, I would definitely say that those who had been healed by him, mm-hmm. uh, those who joined his collective, I would say that they seemed to hold him in a uh, a holy state. Right. Uh, they they he they definitely viewed him as set apart, mm-hmm. and uh, while. Uh, in the pure definition of the set apart definition, mm-hmm. Will qualifies, but he's not holy in the way that God is holy. Right. Well, we, we're short on time, so we're going to have to wrap this up. But the last... Always. <laughs> always short on time, yeah. Um, the, the last quote I want to play is this one. He created this garden for the same reason he did everything. so that they could be together. Now, this comes right at the end of the movie, and it's actually the last line in the movie. The first thing that jumped into my head when I heard that quote was um, Genesis 2.8 and 3.8, in which the discussion is of God creating the Garden of Eden to put man in, uh, man in it. And to, um, and then 3.8 is when God is himself walking in the garden uh, in the morning to you know, be in communion with Adam and Eve. So that was one of the first things I thought of is, you know, that whole reference to the garden that they, that God created the garden so he could be together with the man and the woman that he created. And they kind of destroyed it at the beginning. And I think that it's something to look forward to the consummation of our world into a new heaven and a new earth where we can be in that uh, eternal garden with, with our God. The eternal fellowship. Yeah, yes, the eternal fellowship that we are currently lacking because um, of our sin. But that that was a great catch. I missed that. <laughs> and uh, uh, when when we were discussing this before we started the uh, the recording, uh, you floored me with that observation, and it's so right on. <laughs> I I think that um, there were a lot of parallels in this movie, and I don't necessarily think that the creators of this movie intended them, but it's very interesting to be able to pull them out and look at them from a Christian worldview. Wouldn't it be neat if they were intentional? <laughs> it would be. I kind of doubt it, but it would be. Um, yeah, I do too. Yeah. So, um, well, that's our, that kind of wraps up our discussion. There's probably other things we could talk about and we'd love to hear your thoughts on the movie. So once again, if you, um, want to comment on the show notes, those are at, are you just watching.com slash 48. Um, you can also go to, are you just watching.com slash 47 for our previous discussion and you can leave show notes there. Um, you can also contact us by calling us at 903-231-2221, and you can also email us at feedback at areyoujustwatching.com, or even come and comment on our Facebook page. And be sure to like our Facebook page so you'll see our posts, because we'll be posting stuff that might necess- not necessarily have to do with um, at the movies that we review. So we want to start discussions there. That's a there. great place to have discussions. Right, yeah. right. So. 
Um, but we do also want your audio um, feedback so that we can put that on on episodes. So you can uh, do leave us a voicemail or send us audio files to our email address. Make sure that you subscribe um, to our podcast so you don't miss any episodes. And we are so happy that you joined us for this discussion. It was Thank fun. you very much. It was so yes. fun. <laughs> and I still think we could have done 10 more episodes. Oh, just yes. Saying. Yes, yes. This was, this was one of those movies that had a lot to discuss. And we probably only, even with two episodes, just barely, uh, well, really rushed through the content. So thank you so much for <laughs> sticking with it all the way to the end. Because I have a feeling this episode will be over an hour. So uh, we really appreciate your stamina and <laughs> sticking with us. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm E. Franklin. And I'm Tim Martin. Thanks for listening. And don't just watch. Are You Just Watching is a proud member of the Noodle Mix Network at noodle.mx. Our opening vocal talent was thanks to Mariah. The theme song is used courtesy of Answers in Genesis. For more great podcasts like this one, Visit the Noodle Mix Network at noodle.mx. That's noodle.mx.